Hi, Family Secrets family. It's Danny here with the first bonus episode we're dropping as we get busy producing brand new episodes for the next season. Today, I'm sharing a conversation between myself and the utterly wonderful Kelly Corrigan, whose podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, is a treasure trove of special deep dives with guests such as Austin Channing Brown, Margaret Atwood, George Saunders, Gia Tolentino, Anna Quinlan, Kate Bowler, and oh my God, so many more amazing thinkers. I was honored when Kelly asked me to unpack a platitude that I suspect is near and dear to Family Secrets listeners. What we don't know can't hurt us. Agree or disagree? Hope you'll listen and enjoy. And remember, we're also revamping listener stories, which are now going to be called Danny's Listening, in which we'll listen to a story someone has called in, and I'll respond. So if you want to share your family secret story, just call one 888 Secret Zero. That's one eight 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 secret and the number zero. Hi, I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about the allure of ignorance and its promise of bliss. And in what ways what we don't know might indeed be hurting us, and for that matter, hurting others. So I was reading this funny piece on Medium, my production partner for this series, about how much everybody thinks they know and how very little it turns out we actually do know. For instance, toilets. Like how many people really know how a toilet works? How many people even want to know how a toilet works? So I've been curious about the weight of knowledge for years, and I'm more sensitive than ever to the burden of knowing what's in your kids' texts, what's in the 1,000-page piece of legislation you're so sure you support, what's in our food, our air, our DNA, who makes our laptop, what do our in-laws really think of us, how much is the guy sitting next to us actually getting paid? With me for this deep dive is Danny Shapiro. You may have read one of her novels or memoirs. I think she has like nine books to her name. And you may well be one of the millions who are plugging into her podcast, Family Secrets. Hi, Kelly. Before we get into this conversation, we're going to do a quick speed round so everybody can get a quick sense of you. Danny Shapiro, what book have you read more than once? Many, actually, but I'm going to choose Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. which I try to reread every couple of years, sort of a literary soul palate cleanser. Yeah. Do you have a go-to mantra for hard times? I do. It comes from my friend, the Buddhist teacher, Sylvia Borstein, who speaks to herself as a beloved person, says to herself, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. Other than what you don't know won't hurt you, what platitude makes you crazy? Can I pick two? Sure. Everything happens for a reason, and God doesn't give us more than we can handle. They're essentially the same platitude. They mean it to be comforting, but when you are the person on the receiving end of that, you have been given more than you can handle, and there is absolutely no sense that you have that there is a reason for it, and so there is just this feeling of something being painted over. Yes, and you're not enough for the moment. Right. 
So you have a particularly interesting relationship to knowing more as you recently uncovered something utterly fundamental about your identity. So about four years ago, my husband and I sent away for a DNA test, just the -the over-the-counter recreational DNA testing, really because he wanted to, and I just went along with it. Not for any reason, not out of any curiosity. I thought I knew everything about where I came from, who my parents were, who my ancestors were, what my ethnicity was. This test was so uninteresting to me that I forgot that I had even spit into the plastic vial. It just wasn't a big deal. When the results came back, it was pretty quickly revealed to me that the dad who raised me, who I adored and who I lost in a car accident when I was 23, and my relationship with whom really defined so much of my childhood, teenage years, adult life, my literary life, I found out that he had not been my biological father, which was something that I had never consciously entertained, never, ever occurred to me. And in terms of what we don't know can't or won't hurt us, that led me into this deep dive into these twin mysteries. And the first mystery was, well, if my father wasn't my biological father, who is? And the other was, what did my parents know? And was this something that was actively kept as a secret from me all my life? Was this something that my parents and maybe even other people too knew about me that I didn't know about myself? So when you first put it together, did you think, I really wish I didn't know this. I I would much rather have the story stay stable, that this man that I love so much, that's such a part of my identity, that I've been grieving for 20 or 30 years, I wish I never spit in the vial. Not for a single second did I feel that way. That's so interesting to me. Uh, What's really crazy about my dad, too, I feel like I'd throw the information across the room and run away and say, like, oh, I don't believe you. It's, It's a mistake. I did go through those steps. When the first signs were there, the breakdown of my ethnicity made no sense. I found ways to justify that. My ethnicity should have been that I was nearly 100% Eastern European Ashkenazi. I was raised in a Jewish home. Both of my parents were Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. And my ethnicity came back that I was half Swedish, Irish, French, German. And I just was like, no, 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 no. It must simply be wrong. Or... Maybe all Jews are mongrels in some way, and maybe it's possible to be 50%. As I went on with each step becoming clearer and clearer that this really was the case, I was definitely like a little kid sticking my fingers in my ears going, la, 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 until it was irrefutable. How many minutes, hours, days, weeks, months— until you called your mother? Or had she already passed? Oh, she had passed. There was no one to call. I think one of the things that happened really pretty quickly, and I don't want to underplay how painful it was. It was painful and shocking, but I also didn't wish I didn't know it because it made a kind of immediate, crazy, deep, profound sense. 
I mean, I remember within 24 hours just feeling like, oh, so that was what was going on. That's why everyone who ever met me told me that I didn't look Jewish. That's why people constantly commented on that I didn't look like my family because I didn't. I just thought it was some genetic quirk, but it was staring me in the face in the mirror in a physical resemblance sense, but in a much deeper way, Kelly, it was something didn't add up. I always, as a child, felt other, different, like I sort of had my nose pressed to the glass. Something about me didn't make sense to me. I didn't feel like I belonged in this large extended family who I loved and was very proud to be a part of, but I didn't feel like I belonged. And it was such a strange feeling. I mean, when you're a child and you have those feelings, you have to supply a narrative. And the narrative that I supplied was there must be something wrong with me that I'm feeling this way. And so in the wake of this discovery, I really felt like a huge and massive mystery, a kind of subtle disconnect that I had carried with me all my life with all of my exploration as a writer, as someone who publicly contemplates for a living and for my art. I was like missing the bullseye. I kept on throwing arrows, but I knew that I was missing my mark. I knew it but I didn't know what that meant. It just felt like something must just be wrong with me that it doesn't all add up. So you have done 30-some episodes of this podcast called Family Secrets, and Family Secrets is exactly what it sounds like. It's somebody coming on and talking to you about a family secret. Is it your conclusion that in almost all those cases, they too have like a niggling sense that something's screwy, that something's not adding up? Is that a feature of many stories where you come to know something? Absolutely it is. In almost all of the stories where a secret has been withheld in that way, where it has to do with identity or with a closely held family secret about a tragedy, a loss, there is a sense on the part of the person from whom it's been withheld that something hasn't felt right. As you did, do people typically pin that on themselves? Is it sort of eating away at people's self-esteem that they're feeling this sense of misalignment? Certainly in the case of misattributed parentage. But when it comes to someone's parent not having been their biological parent and them never having known that, or cases where someone is adopted and has never been told, There is absolutely, across the board, almost the same language that's used of, it felt like something didn't make sense to me about me. I didn't add up. It's so sad. I had cancer in my 30s, and we went to see the doctors, and then after we got organized about what I was going to do and when chemo would start and all that, then I said, what do we do with these kids? We have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And they said, until kids are eight, They sort of believe that everything's about them. And so the doctor was saying to you, your kids should just know this. It should not be something that's kept from them. And 
thank goodness for the wisdom of that doctor because even to this day in medical situations, information that's withheld. Everybody's sparing each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, except they're, they think they are. It's in the name of protection. It's in the name of love. I mean, one of the things that I learned in my story when I really started researching it is that at the time that my parents were experiencing infertility, my father was unable to get my mother pregnant, basically. And they ultimately used a sperm donor. And this was in the 1960s. And every piece of research that I did, every book that I read, every magazine article that I read, basically contained also the same language from the medical community, which was, the child must never know. Go home and never tell anyone. Don't tell other siblings. Don't tell your parents. Don't tell your sisters or brothers. Don't tell your friends. It will be as if it never happened because what we don't know won't hurt us. It's in the literature. Because their parents were told the child must never know, it actually became, in most cases, so buried inside the psyches of the parents that it became like almost dissolved, almost like it didn't exist at all, except secrets don't work that way. Secrets never go away. Secrets are like toxic waste. They never go away. And when they're not dealt with head on, they leach into everything surrounding them so that the air that I was breathing when I was growing up was confused air. It was two parents who knew what they had done, but had decided that it had never happened. And so when they looked at me, they saw their own secret that they had buried. One thing that's interesting about the thing that your parents kept from you and from all your guests on Family Secrets is that not only did they keep it, but they are keeping it. Like, it's a daily thing. And that, I think, is one of the most unsettling things about what you don't know and and why, ultimately, it's such a crusher when your ignorance is removed. There's all sorts of things that are painful and heavy to know and to live with and that are being kept from us, that are being smoothed over by various institutions and organizations that we have to deal with in American society. For instance, how the United States operated in Vietnam or what is in Donald Trump's tax code, what goes into a piece of Wonder Bread, what's in your kids' texts. But nonetheless, there's zero progress, as is true for a, a human being, right? There's zero personal progress, and there's also zero societal progress if we're living with manipulated information. Absolutely. The tagline for Family Secrets is the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. And I actually find the secrets that we keep from ourselves perhaps the most poignant of those kinds of secrets. I don't believe that my parents stayed awake at night in the dark whispering to each other in their bed about how they were keeping this secret from their child. I don't believe that they ever spoke of it again. And so it also leached into their marriage, which was a very contentious and unhappy marriage. 
My mother was contemptuous of my father. My father was depressed. And, you know, I spent my life as a writer trying to dig into why my parents were the way they were. And all of the narratives that I supplied were true. They just weren't the whole truth. And so on Family Secrets, at the end of every interview, I always ask my guest, do you wish you didn't know? Every single time. I have yet to have a single guest say, yeah, I wish I hadn't known. Mm. I feel like this knowledge that I have and that I have now had for the last four years is like a superpower. I remember calling a therapist that I had seen for years because when you make a discovery like this, you can't go to somebody new. (laughs) And when I called her, she said, you know, there was always a subtle disconnect. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, the woman sitting across from me, like what you were narrating about your life and your childhood and what your affect was and your presentation and your energy, they didn't mesh. And I mean, to take that a step further, my mother-in-law, who was this really wise, wonderful woman who had known my mother, and my mother was quite difficult. She said to me, sweetheart, I don't know how you survived your childhood. You must have a hell of a constitution. (laughs) And I looked at her and I remember thinking, she's right. I do. I did not come from two people who had a hell of a constitution, either one of them, in any way, both in terms of nature and in terms of nurture. And yet I did have something within me that I didn't understand. And I couldn't have articulated that to you at the time. All I knew was, this doesn't add up. When Danny and I talked, I had just come back from Montgomery, Alabama, where I spent two days with civil rights attorney Brian Stevenson. He's the Just Mercy guy. Talking about how knowing more about our nation's history, like the full story, not the heroes only highlight reel, might be the only way forward for America and our racial reckoning. I just spent a whole bunch of time with Brian Stevenson for this PBS show that I'm doing. And we talked a lot about truth and reconciliation in the United States around race relations, going from slavery to Jim Crow to lynching to police brutality, these four major movements in American history. And he said, I think everybody owes it to themselves and to their nation to look at your family history under the lens of racism and slavery. Now look at the college you went to. Like, how did that college benefit from it? Now look at where you bank. How does that bank operate? Now look at your homeowners association and keep looking at every circle you're in for a more truthful, complete accounting of that organization's history. It is more comfortable in many ways, to not know everything about our country, everything about our spouse, everything about our town, everything about our children. My son is actually, my son is 21, but he has left his journal literally open, sitting on a table in our house. And I've never looked, I think I would have if I was worried about him. I never have need to do that. I just want to admit, I could never walk past an open journal. If I saw it, I would be like, this is a sign. I'm supposed to look at it. Maybe she wants me to look. You know, I have all kinds of like 
mental gymnastics that I'll do around things to justify what I know would be infuriating if someone were to do it to me. Well, my mother read my journal, so I think that that just cured me. In my desire to be nothing like her, there are certain just clear sort of lines in the sand of like, I won't cross that. My mom read my journal, and I got (laughs) grounded for an entire month of ninth grade because I had written down in my journal curse words. And she said, that is so filthy, I can't believe how long that list was, and you're grounded for a month. I'm glad she didn't read my journal. Yeah. (laughs) I I was like, that's pretty innocent, right? So when I was listening to the researcher talk about nature versus nurture, you think about, as a parent, how desperately you want my parental moves, at least my best ones, to count, to land, to have the impact that I so desire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was on the road, I had a lot of people in my audiences who were parents, parents of biological kids, parents of adopted kids, of donor-conceived kids. And I started getting a lot of pushback and kind of angry, threatened comments during the Q&As. And like, basically, what are you saying? Are you saying that nature trumps nurture? What are you saying to us? And of course, it's not remotely what I was saying, but I thought that's so interesting. Why are people feeling this way? And what I came to understand is that we so desperately want nurture to be all that matters because we believe that we can control it. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I found that the new information that science is sort of generally rallying around this idea that 50% of what we've considered to be personality traits are driven by our genetic code. I found that enormously freeing. A big promise of knowing more is that you will be perhaps uncomfortable and you'll perhaps be at sea a little bit, but ultimately there are certain freedoms that come with the full story. And a freedom for me was, oh, maybe you shouldn't be so insistent that your kid make some change because maybe that's just written into them. That's like saying like, change your eye color, grow another inch, (laughs) you know, be a faster runner. It's pushing them to change in ways that maybe they're not capable of changing. And so to me, just knowing that additional piece of information caused me to accept my kids a little bit more just as they are And maybe even to accept myself a little bit more as I am. And I was thinking about all kinds of weird examples of knowing more and areas of ignorance that are then revealed to us. Like when Georgia was in like fourth grade, we went to a field trip and we went to the local recycling center. And they showed us exactly what happens to the things that we are collecting in all of our individual houses that are going on the truck every Friday, and what, for instance, ruins a pile of recycling. If you put this in there and they discover it, then they have to wash the whole thing. Or this is what can really be composted, and then this is what ruins a pile of compost. The whole thing has to be thrown out. Can you think of any examples where you had this super huge aha that caused you to live differently and and potentially better? I've thought a lot about the way that this time of COVID and all of this forced slowdown. And for those of us who have been staying home and who haven't had to be on the front lines of this thing, we've been living differently. I don't think it's an accident that the level to which people are 
waking up in the wake of George Floyd's death is happening in part because there was room for it, because we all were operating on a different frequency, in a different bandwidth, and we all were feeling the rawness and the vulnerability of there being this invisible virus and getting so much misinformation about it. I think that that's what this period of time feels like to me. I feel like I am using it to peel back as many layers as I can to understand as much as I can and to ultimately do as much as I can. Well, the other thing is that there aren't as many distractions. You can read the whole article because you're not packing your suitcase for the next day. And then you're not racing from one plane to the next. And then you're not watching the Warriors potentially win the NBA title for a sixth time. And, you know, like there's nothing on TV. There's nothing to do. And so it has created this openness. But there is a fatigue that I just want to acknowledge around knowing what you don't know and desiring to know that and committing to knowing that is that a fatigue kicks in. It sort of reminded me of this crazy interaction I had with my mom on the eve of her 75th birthday. So my mom is a funny lady. She's very committed to us. She's 80 now, lives alone in Villanova. And I said, hey, Ma, I have an idea for your birthday. My two brothers and I were going to chip in and get you something a little more substantial. And she said, oh, I've been thinking about this. I know exactly what I want for my birthday, Kelly. And I was like, oh, my God, she's going to say, like, a new car. You know, like, I've really painted us into a corner here. And then she said, I would like to say that if there is any problem that you or your brothers have, that there's something I can do about it, I would like to know. And I was like, God, Mom, like— That is sort of the nicest thing anybody's ever said. She said, hold on. The second part of my gift is if there is any problem that you or your brothers have, that there is not one thing on earth that I can do to make better, I would like to not know about it. I am tired. I don't want to know that Edward's job is iffy. I don't want to know that George's knees hurt. I don't want to know that Claire didn't get to start in her game. If I can help, I'm there. I feel that with, for instance, climate change where you're like, please tell me, what can I do? I mean, I remember at the end of Inconvenient Truth, I was like, if you don't give me 10 things to do, I'm going to die. And it's the same with racism in America. What you're talking about, in part, is trauma and action. And in Bessel van der Kolk's great book, The Body Keeps the Score, he's one of the leading experts on trauma in the world. He talks about the way that those who are able to actually take action within a traumatic event do better in the long run than those who are trapped in the burning car or helpless to save someone who's pinned under a building where there's nothing that can be done. And when action can be taken, there's this feeling of efficacy and movement and room who can I call? What can I do? Where can I donate? Where can I show up? Where can I protest? Where can I march? How do we hold all that and not be paralyzed by it? You know, it's interesting to think about how hard and complex progress is and how if that message gets oversimplified, if we're afraid to share the uneven, herky-jerky, two steps forward, one step back nature of most progress, that people on their own individual journeys 
as soon as they discover a pothole, think, oh, this must be really bad. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is it. This is exactly how it goes. Our ethos as Americans is to tell the story that we broke free from the British and we put a flag in the land and it's been great ever since and it gets better every day. And that's, of course, not true. And I think to diminish that message or to obscure that information is really to all of our detriment because you need the proper amount of stamina. Right after 9-11, William Faulkner's Nobel acceptance speech made its way around the world of writers. In it, he describes the sentence that I remember most is, I decline to accept the end of man. And it's an exhortation to people who are making art to continue to make art because it still matters. I've thought so many times in in these months of pandemic about the influenza epidemic of 1918. Yes. And I've been very interested in speaking to my really elderly friends. I have an aunt who's 96, who I speak to all the time and who's very wise. And to hear her, I mean, she's shaken. There's a lot happening. And we're in a moment where the whole world really is trembling. But the context of it's not the first moment. And I think for our generation, I have no memory of Kennedy getting shot or or Dr. King or Malcolm X or RFK. I have no memory of any of that And I think our generation has never really suffered. And it's like we don't have muscles for it. We're not the toughest generation. We're a little atrophied. We're not the toughest generation and we're not the toughest country, clearly. Yeah. I want to make the case for knowing more. And so I wrote down reasons why it's worth knowing what you don't know. And I just want to get your thoughts on each one. So one is that the discovery is likely to come. As you said at the top, secrets are like toxic waste. They don't disintegrate. They just move around and they reform themselves in smaller spaces, but they're coming. It must be your strong conviction that it always comes out. Oh, I I absolutely see that whether it's I mean, look, my parents took their secret to the grave with them and it still came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they must have thought we made it. Yeah, they accomplished what they set out to do. But no, absolutely, whether it's generational, it's the next generation, or it's even the generation after. Carl Jung called secrets psychic poison. It never goes away. People have said to me, I don't know what to do. And my only response is, they're going to find out. So the question is only, are they going to find out from you, which is always going to be better, not comfortable, but better for, it's a reckoning, really, like while you're still on the planet. Right. One of my friends found out that her father had been having an affair for many years, and it just caused her to like rethink her entire childhood. And it's really unsettling to look back and think, how many lies did you tell me? Did you tell me like 5,000 lies? What does that mean about what's true of me? So I think that there's a uh, level of damage that is pretty pervasive when you discover that somebody kept something under wraps. Another thing that I wrote down about the case for knowing more is that when you know more, you can find your people. 
So if I said I have the courage to discover whether I'm genetically predisposed to have cancer again, and I get the tests back and I find out I am, and now I know my kids might be. But now I also know that like three people on my block are the same. And I also know that the 18-year-old who used to babysit my girls, she knows that she has this genetic predisposition. The potential for intimacy around this stuff is enormous. And in fact, I think intimacy thrives on things like this, things you're afraid of, things that you have shame around. As Mr. Rogers said, like if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And in the process of managing with others like you, there is terrific potential for intimacy. That's so beautiful, Kelly. And I think that this time we're living in, we're all so overwhelmed by technology and there's just endless reasons to not love the connectivity and the internet and the availability of so much information all the time. But one of the beautiful aspects is that we find the people like us if we know the truth of ourselves, where there are secrets, it's always because there's shame. Shame causes or is part of the sense of isolation. I'm the only person in the world that this has happened to. I'm the only person in the world like me. No one would understand this. People keep secrets from each other because they think, if I told anyone this, they would shun me. I would be mortified. Can I tell you a quick story? Yeah. There was one time where I was leading this writing retreat for a couple hundred people, and I gave them this prompt at the very end of a weekend. I said, I'm going to give you three minutes. No one is going to see what you wrote. You can throw it away. You can burn it. I want you to take three minutes, and I want you to write the thing that if anyone knew about you, you would die of mortification. Okay, start. And I looked around the room, and no one hesitated. It wasn't like people were sitting there looking at the ceiling thinking, I don't know what that thing would be, that thing that that I'm so ashamed about. I have no idea. And it was such a revelation to me to see that. But I also, I would never have done this, but I would have loved to have taken a step further and then said, okay, now everyone put those pieces of paper in a basket and now we're going to all read them aloud. I didn't do that. It would have been a breach of trust, but what would have happened? Everyone would have been nodding. Everyone would have been crying. Everyone would have been saying, me too, me too, me too. But there's something about human nature that makes us think that it's us, that we're alone. I mean, when I found out about my dad, I felt like an alien who had crashed onto earth and that no one would ever understand. And of course, there was this world of people. And in the world of of illness, there is a world of people. And in the world of grief, there is a world of people. And, and in every kind of gender fluidity, there is a world of people. And and in everything that anyone has ever been through, there is a world of people. And yet we remain in these places that are so driven by fear. I'm so amused and delighted every time I go to like a really good magazine store and they have Southern Quilter or triplicate bridge players, like these really specific communities. And it's right there in front of you in this enormous display of 100 magazines. There are people who do everything. Yeah, There are people who do and have lived through everything. There are 8 billion people alive. No one is alone. 
It's really a powerfully true statement that no one is actually alone. And cross that with the internet, and then you realize you can find them now. And it's never too late. Because I think the shame of having kept a secret for a long time stops people from being able to bear the idea of they're going to be confronted with, how could you not have told me this? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you combine the fact that the secrets always end up coming out and what you said about people then thinking, well, if you lied to me about that, what else did you lie to me about? And being left with a kind of reshuffling or reordering of an entire history, which is unnecessary. People need permission Mm -hmm. to know that even though it's not going to be easy, it is going to be okay. And you know what? Even if it's not okay, it's okay because it's the truth. And it's better. It's better. Mm -hmm. It's like the air has been lightened. This burden has been released. The final thing that's so lovely about knowing more and sharing more and sort of setting aside your shame in order to do so is that's the only way you're going to know that you could actually be loved as you are. Because if you're playing a different game, if you're projecting something that isn't quite true, then you must have this secret fear that if they knew, like all those poor people in your writing class, if they thought that the person next to them was going to read it, they would assume you will not want to know me. We will not become friends when you see this. And the transcendent, beautiful truth is they will want to know you. They will not avoid you. They will not be afraid of you. The opposite, they'll be drawn to you and they'll be attracted to you, to your essence. I have never seen any situation in which that is not the case. That's perfect. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Such a pleasure. It was a great conversation. So here are my takeaways, which you can find at medium.com slash at Kelly. Think twice before you spit into a plastic vial and send it away. Secrets are like toxic waste. They never go away. In the absence of knowing the truth, children will make up stories. And in those stories, they will be the deeply flawed central character. The question isn't, are they going to find out? The question is, are they going to find out from you? I never would have thought I'd have something in common with William Faulkner, but I, too, declined to accept the end of man. Freedom is knowing the whole story. Freedom requires knowing the whole story, even if it hurts. With trauma, those who can take action, even action that doesn't change the outcome, fare better than those who are merely acted upon. And finally, good news. You are not unique. There is another person, at least one, who has had this, felt this, done this. The reward for sharing is intimacy. Thank you to Danny Shapiro. Thank you to Medium for production support on this series. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is produced by Susan George, and our sound editor is Dean Kateri. I'll see you next time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here.